Today's show is sponsored by Malwarebytes, modern cybersecurity that eliminates the online threats traditional security software misses. Get with the times. Get Malwarebytes for business. Learn more at Malwarebytes.com. That's Malware, B-Y-T-E-S, dot com. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 8th. In today's news, the acting Navy secretary resigns. Wisconsinites risk infection to vote. And the ventilator shortage pits New York hospitals against each other. But first, the big idea. To protect President Trump, the White House is using rapid coronavirus tests desperately needed by local communities. Every guest visiting Trump and Vice President Pence is required to undergo the exam each time they enter the White House since last week. Visitors said they've been administered the test developed by Abbott Labs at the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, the complex across the street from the West Wing, where Pence has an office and the staff of the National Security Council is based. Abbott, which says it's now producing 50,000 tests per day, began giving the White House first dibs for as many tests as it needs. One recent visitor noticed administration officials, including a couple members of the cabinet, waiting to get tested, and he was told that every visitor would get a test, even if they feel healthy. Outside the White House, though, the Trump administration has still not settled on a national testing strategy. In the absence of a national plan, states are being left to figure it out on their own. Several states are developing their own testing systems, but the emerging picture varies widely. States with more money and robust medical sectors have devised comprehensive plans, while others lag far behind. During a tense meeting in the Situation Room on Monday, White House Coronavirus Coordinator Debbie Burks and Brett Girard, the HHS Assistant Secretary for Health Preparedness, debated where to send the newest Abbott tests. Girard told reporters he was confident This effort would give the United States a reliable tool by next month to determine who had been exposed to the virus and could re-enter society safely. Officials have also indicated that they want the major labs like Roche Diagnostics to provide serology tests, looking at the blood of people who had the coronavirus. In the meantime, Joe Breezy, the deputy incident manager for the CDC in charge of pandemic response, said the agency has begun testing blood samples from people in coronavirus hotspots to determine whether those people, whether they know it or not, may have antibodies that give them some immunity. On the other side of the Atlantic, European leaders, especially the Germans, are thinking not just more creatively, but more aggressively about these challenges. The global leadership that would historically have come from Washington in the face of a pandemic like this is now coming from Berlin. European governments are seriously mulling the introduction of what they're calling immunity passports to let individuals who have had the virus return to a more normal life. Now, German scientists caution that this stage of the response is still a ways off, but the German labs that have been the engine of that country's successful strategy to contain the spread of the coronavirus are shifting now to a new phase, antibody testing. 
In recent days, the IFLB lab in Berlin began blood tests that can determine whether someone has had the virus and has immunity against being reinfected. These tests can be done rapidly. Germany's first test kits for mass antibody screening was certified late last month. The proactive testing strategy has been held up across the West. Germany is now carrying out 50,000 coronavirus tests per day, and they're able to scale up much faster for whatever reason than the Americans can. There remain crucial questions, though, over how long someone's immunity might last and at what level, and there are concerns about tests producing false positives and insufficient capacity for widespread national testing. But Gerard Krauss, an epidemiologist with the Hemholtz Center for Infection Research, said antibody testing studies in Germany could provide an indication of how many people have been infected and thus help government assess the risk of easing various restrictions, including by region. In Germany, studies already underway or planned over the coming months involve sampling roughly 100,000 people. One, by the University of Bonn, will study 1,000 people from the hard-hit town of Heinsberg. Another in Munich will repeat tests on the same sample group regularly to monitor the spread and understand the rate of false positives. This week, Austria and Denmark became the first countries to lay out plans for the gradual reopening of shops and businesses in their country. Norway joined them yesterday as it announced that some schools and small businesses will reopen later this month. And German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who has been quite tight-lipped on her strategy for lifting restrictions, says she's being tight-lipped because she doesn't want to raise people's hopes prematurely. But she also said yesterday, and it sounded better in the original German, that she would be a bad chancellor if she was not constantly thinking about the end game. Merkel, in contrast to our president, has a doctorate in quantum chemistry and was a quite successful research scientist in the 1980s. She says that without a vaccine, it might take two years for the population to achieve herd immunity, meaning that so many people have been infected that the number of those still susceptible is no longer enough to sustain further spread of the virus. That is why she says she's a big proponent of the antibody testing. Speaking of European leaders, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson spent a second night in the intensive care unit at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. His health minister says he's resting comfortably, he's stable and in good spirits, but he is still receiving oxygen in order to be able to breathe. Over in Asia, Wuhan emerged today from its 76-day lockdown. 11 million residents of that city have been given the liberty to move around the city and the mainland, again, provided that their government-issued health code shines green. The Chinese Communist Party, already a surveillance state, is assigning everyone in the country a green, orange, or red code according to their risk of having the coronavirus. And people must scan a QR code on their phone before they're allowed to enter any store or restaurant or ride public transportation. It's an electronic passport for daily life. In Hong Kong, where the people yearn to be free from Chinese oppression, COVID-19 has put the kibosh on the mass anti-government, anti-Beijing protests because they're not safe or allowed to assemble. Instead, these pro-democracy activists are using Nintendo's Animal Crossing video game as a place to congregate without flouting the social distancing rules. In the simulation game, players can visit each other's islands online. This creates ample opportunities for pro-democracy content, 
created inside the game to spread. We can only hope that democracy one day spreads again on the island where these folks live in real life. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, acting Navy Secretary Thomas Modley stepped down yesterday after drawing widespread condemnation for insulting the commanding officer of an aircraft carrier who he fired last week for writing a letter of concern about the Navy's handling of a coronavirus outbreak aboard his vessel. Modley traveled from Washington to Guam on Monday to give a speech to the 5,000-member crew of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, whose commander, Captain Brett Crozier, Modley removed last week. In profanity-laced remarks over a loudspeaker, which were quickly leaked to reporters, Modley assailed the captain's character. By Monday night, Modley had released a statement sort of apologizing for insulting him. Crozier's also tested positive for the virus. Modley said the captain did write the letter to cause a stir. Defense Secretary Mark Esper had asked Modley to apologize, thinking that that could put this behind them. But instead, the pressure for his resignation increased, including among senior people in the Defense Department and on the Hill. President Trump claimed yesterday that he had no role in it and does not even know who Modley is. He appointed Modley. The president said he wouldn't have asked him to resign. Taking Modley's place will be Army Undersecretary James McPherson, who was confirmed last month as the Army's number two political appointee. I wonder who he'll root for in the Army-Navy game. Number two, Wisconsin proceeded yesterday with its primary despite long lines, anger, and looming fears of infection. The snaking lines in Milwaukee and other cities illustrated the fallout from the Wisconsin Supreme Court's controversial order to proceed with Tuesday's election over the strong objections of the governor and public health officials. It also showed the determination of many voters to participate in democracy despite the pandemic and the personal risk to themselves. The challenge for election officials hit hardest in Milwaukee, which opened only five voting locations out of the typical 180 because poll workers refused to show up and put themselves at risk. Green Bay offered only two polling locations instead of the usual 31. Voters there had to wait up to three hours to cast a ballot. In thousands of local elections, voters still participated. They also cast votes in the presidential primary between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. But the results will not be released until next Monday, according to the State Election Commission. And some voters complained to us that they had to go to the polls in person after requesting absentee ballots that never arrived. Others told us that they were too fearful to vote because of the risk of infection. Number three, in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo's cooperation orders are vexing hospitals afraid to surrender their precious ventilators. Officials at some major healthcare systems are struggling to balance support for the governor with fears that his new directive, signed yesterday, risks undercutting their ability to treat their patients that they already have. Cuomo signed an executive order that says, should it become necessary, the state will forcibly round up hospital ventilators to send them to where they're needed more. This has amplified anxieties that, in the words of Jody Lameo, the chief executive of a Buffalo-based health system, the governor's pitting upstate New York against downstate in the city. Cuomo has aggressively defended his strategy while insisting that any materials diverted to New York City will be redistributed once the crisis there abates and his needs emerge elsewhere. Other states around the country are also scrambling to set guidelines dictating who gets a ventilator when the numbers inevitably start to run low in the next few weeks. 
Pennsylvania officials have adopted new guidelines giving doctors, nurses, and others preferential access to scarce ventilators when there's a shortage. But that idea makes some uncomfortable. In Maryland, a panel of medical experts rejected priority access. They believe that those sick enough to need the life-sustaining machines would be unlikely to return to their jobs anytime soon. Therefore, defining who is and who is not a healthcare worker in a crisis is too morally fraught. Many hospitals are going to need to activate grim triage plans in the next week or two that rank patients based on who is most likely to benefit from intensive care. Pregnant women get extra priority points in most, if not all, plans. This isn't controversial. Of course they should. The elderly, anyone with terminal cancer, and people with chronic conditions fare poorly in triage plans, as do people with disabilities. Doctors need to make grueling decisions to prioritize the healthy over the sickly when deciding who gets to live or die. But there's a lot of ongoing debate among ethicists and doctors about whether high-ranking politicians, police officers, and other leaders, including the clergy, should be considered critical workers at a time when our country is under attack by this invisible enemy. Meanwhile, New York continues to be ground zero in the front line of the war on the virus. The state has 5,500 confirmed deaths today and 140,000 cases. In one horrifying story, a Queens family was told that their 73-year-old grandmother, who showed symptoms of the virus and was near death because of it, would be taken to the Jamaica Hospital Medical Center. But when they called to check on her condition after the ambulance took her away, they were told she wasn't there. Her relatives called every hospital they could and emergency agencies across town looking for her. It took a week before they were finally informed that the paramedics had written down the wrong name and they had taken her to the Jamaica hospital. Her son, who himself now has the virus, identified her body yesterday. They didn't get to say goodbye. The staggering surge of New Yorkers dying in their homes suggests that the city's official death toll is likely far lower than reality. The medical examiner says about 200 city residents are dying in their apartments every day compared to 20 to 25 such deaths normally before the pandemic. None of these people are being counted in the total. Amid the grim casualty reports from the front, epidemiologists see some fresh glimmers of hope that the death toll may not match their worst fears. New York's number of new patients admitted to hospitals appears to be trending slightly downward. Still, what's passing for good news these days means that about 70,000 Americans alive this morning will be dead by August. The University of Washington model predicts that the worst day for deaths in America will be around April 16th, meaning that daily death tolls will continue to grow higher for each of the next eight days until then. While the number of deaths remains high, that figure can be a lagging indicator behind the number of hospital admissions, which are a better predictor of the outbreak's future course. Researchers at Columbia University tell us that they believe the next hotspots are going to be in the South and then the Midwest. California Governor Gavin Newsom said yesterday that the virus's curve there is bending and stretching, but he warned that tough days are ahead for the Golden State, which has 16,000 cases and 374 deaths. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards says his state's curve is also flattening, with new projections indicating that New Orleans is no longer on track to run out of hospital beds and ventilators in the next two weeks. Finally, in the heart of downtown Alton, Illinois, in a tavern right off the Mississippi River, an illicit party was rumbling into the early morning hours of Sunday. 
complaints from residents have been pouring in over the past week that Hiram's Tavern had been operating despite Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker's stay-at-home executive order. So the mayor of Alton, Brant Walker, ordered his police department to start issuing citations to anyone who wasn't complying. The police raided Hiram's at 1 a.m. on Sunday morning, and the mayor's phone rang. They told him they had busted Hiram's tavern, and his wife was inside. The mayor apologized to his constituents yesterday, saying he is, quote, embarrassed by his wife Shannon's stunning lack of judgment. She was cited for reckless conduct, a misdemeanor. He said he told the police officers at the scene to ensure that she received no special treatment. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 8th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Stay safe. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Today's show is sponsored by Malwarebytes, modern cybersecurity that eliminates the online threats traditional security software misses. Get with the times. Get Malwarebytes for business. Learn more at Malwarebytes.com. That's Malware, B-Y-T-E-S, dot com.